Hey, how we doing? It's time for another Rich in Relationship. And uh, wow, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm actually in Florida right now, but I figured this has got to happen. We got to do this. We got to talk about what's going on in the world of relationship. And today we're going to talk about keeping, like how our emotions in the divorce process, how emotions need to keep up with the law or how we can slow the law down so that our emotional state can move forward with it. And it's a really interesting idea when you think about it, because most of us, when we're doing something or we're in the middle of something that doesn't feel good, we want to get it over with, right? We want to be done with the bad times and just have us some good times again. But Huma Abedin, who has been separated from her husband, former Senator Anthony Weiner for six years now, has showed us that there can be a different way. And there's reasons for it. There's good reasons. Now, I want to be really clear. I am not personally acquainted with Huma or Anthony. Everything I'm going to talk about is what we've been presented through the media. And so we're going to talk about this. Uh, really, I might as well be talking about a make-believe case because we don't even know if the media has proven all the facts in this case. But that doesn't really matter. I mean, what really matters is there's a story about two people who it wasn't working for in their marriage anymore, and there was a child involved. There's a story about two people and a child and how they chose to navigate it. And we can talk about like that choice from a lot of different perspectives. We can talk about it from a what felt good for them, what was good for the child, what was good for the people that they work for and for the business they were in, uh, why they might have made those choices. And what's cool about this is that we get to put ourselves in their shoes. All right, are you with me? Are you following me? All right, so let's do this. <clears throat> All right. Uh, you may recall in the past election, Hillary Clinton was running against, well, the past past election, Hillary Clinton was running against Donald Trump. This is a pre-Biden. It's about six years ago. And she had this aide named Huma Abedin, who's been with her like forever. And there was a scandal with Huma's husband, who was a senator. And why it was significant is because it was in some ways very reminiscent of Hillary's scandal with her husband. So it brought up a lot of dirt or resurfaced a lot of dirt at a sort of key time in the election. And Huma has been quoted later on uh, in the last couple of years of saying she feels responsible for Hillary losing that election due to this particular scandal. So it has significance politically. Anyway, the story goes like this. Huma was courted by Anthony Weiner forever. Uh, and Huma, as she relates her story, is a was a very devout and faithful Muslim and had saved herself for the right man. And so uh, Anthony was relentless in pursuing her. And she did eventually marry him, fall in love and marry him. And they had a child together and everything seemed to be rosy. But there started to surface evidence that Anthony maybe had some other things going on, that there might've been other people in his life uh, and the punchline was right at a key point in the Clinton campaign against Trump, this evidence surfaced that 
Uhuma's husband, Anthony, had been sexting with a 16-year-old. And by sexting, he'd been sending her pictures of himself, shirtless and pantsless. There's one picture in particular that uh, came out in Huma's book recently of him, a picture he sent of himself, of his crotch in his underwear with a picture of their son in bed with their newly born son in bed with him. And so then there's a whole question of, is there some kind of perversion going on here involving the son? And why would Huma allow Anthony near him even? And there's all kinds of stuff like that. And the short story is Anthony went to prison, right? For a couple of years, he went to prison. Now, Huma got a legal separation from him. And for those who don't know, a legal separation is very much like a divorce agreement, except that you're not divorced, you're living in separate domiciles. Um, and then Anthony's released from prison. And now Huma and Anthony are moving into the same apartment building, not the same apartment, but the same building. And the reason, the stated reason is that Huma wants to have Anthony close for their child, for their son, which is reasonable. But there's this whole backstory of him sending pictures of, him, of himself in his underwear with his son sleeping right next to him and all this other good stuff. So there's a lot of hubbub in the media about this, about why would she, why would she do this? Why would she live under the same roof with this guy? Why did she take so long to divorce him? Why didn't she just divorce him and be done with it? Why did she stick by him? Why And why is she moving forward with him? Now, Huma's, the way Huma tells it, there were a lot of factors involved here. One is her relationship with her mentor and friend, Hillary Clinton. That, and she would do nothing in any way to compromise her further, if at all possible. It's understandable. She's her boss, her mentor, her confidant, her friend. She didn't want to do anything to put her in any more of an uncomfortable position. Then another piece is that there's an ongoing story that she's communicated to the press that Anthony is not a pervert, but he's a man with a disease, uh, uh, a mental illness, in fact. And that it's that he's getting treatment for this mental illness and that he's in recovery from it. And the, the implication, though she hasn't spoken to it, is that the mental illness has nothing to do, the sexual mental illness that he has has nothing to do with children. Now, the question is, why should we believe this? It's really interesting because, you know, for a long time, uh, when uh, being homosexuality started to come out as a thing, when homosexuals started to fight for their right, when they started to say that the laws against them were unfair, that it's okay for a man to love a man and a woman to love a woman, et cetera, et cetera, there was, at that period of time, it was not unusual for people to be afraid to have homosexuals be Boy Scout leaders, for example. And because there was a whole misconception that if you were willing to have sex with a man, then probably you would, uh, you would engage in sexual relations with a child. It was a total misconception. I mean, because the fact is that pedophiles, people who, in, who pursue children for sex, they, are pretty much exclusively interested in children. And men who have sex with men are interested in men, not children. It's, it was just, it's a whole misconception about this kind of thing. And all the evidence is that Anthony 
was even though it, it, he was sexting with a 16 year old, she was she was not a child. She was not a baby. Uh, I mean, she may have she's a child legally, but she's uh, had a developed body. Uh, she's under an underage minor is what she is. And, and there's a line there developmentally between, let's say, 12, 13, 14, maybe even and 16, 17, 18, you know, when you're really moving into adulthood. So even though he was, he's considered, he is a convicted sex felon. Make no mistake, he's a consistent pedophile even. Even though it's a form of pedophilia, we, and we often condemn all pedophiles as uh, being evil, wrong, and terrible, and I'm not condoning pedophilia. I think it's pretty safe to say that pedophilia falls into categories, that there are people who are interested in young women or young men, there are people who are interested in what are clearly children. And there may be even more distinctions than that. I don't honestly know enough about it. But I think the evidence is pretty clear here that number one, Anthony is interested in the opposite sex. And number two, they, if, it's an, it's, if it's an underage minor, they're gonna at least have some of the physical attributes of an adult. It's probably the best way to put this. So there probably is no risk for this child. And Huma obviously believes that or she would not allow him to have a relationship with her son. So why would she choose to move into the same apartment building as this man? Well, anyone who's familiar with child-centered divorce is gonna get this. The easier it is for your child to have access to the other parent, the better it's gonna be for them. The ideal situation in a divorce, as I see it, is what's called nesting. So nesting is where a couple has a house together and their kids have been growing up in it. And when they get divorced, because this is their child's home and it's the place of stability for them, they agree that they're each going to take an apartment, small apartment somewhere else. And on Monday, on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, let's say, mom will be in the house, the family house with the child. And on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, dad will be in the house with the child and they'll, al they'll alternate being in the nest, the family home with the children or child. And this is a lot like a nesting situation when you think about it. They're in the same, under the same roof, in the same apartment building. The distinction here is they've got separate apartments, but it's gonna be familiar for the son and it's gonna be easy for them to hand the son off. And it's gonna be easy for the, uh, they may not even have to see each other. The son may just get in the elevator and go up to dad's or up to mom's, whatever the situation is, or go down to mom or down to dad's. It, it will become easier and easier as their son develops and grows. So from a child rearing point of view, it's actually a great situation. And people wonder, well, why would she wanna be so close to him? The fact of the matter is, you know, I know that most of America doesn't live in apartment buildings. I grew up in an apartment building in Manhattan and I can testify that you don't know most of the people in your apartment building unless you want to. You can live a life of quiet anonymity in your apartment building. In fact, people work at it. The, the fact is that the closer the quarters are that people live in, the more privacy they give one another. And so it's totally possible and even probable that Anthony and Huma will have minimal contact under the same roof and minimal exposure to one another while they get all the benefits of nesting together. 
So in many ways, this is a really wise choice. So let's get down to the really core issue though, the emotional part. So here she is, six years ago, they separated. He goes to prison, she's living alone separated. He gets out of prison, she's living alone separated. And now she is finalizing the divorce. Is that good or is it bad? And you know, from, uh, there are a lot of different angles that this could be good. So I'm gonna argue for good here. It might look like she just can't let go of this guy, but I don't think so. I think this is an intelligent human being, a caring human being, and someone who's very dedicated and committed to her principles and values. And here's why I think that. Number one, she still regrets what happened to her boss as a result of her husband's actions, which were totally beyond her control. She still regrets it. She's still employed by Hillary. She's still a friend, has a friendship with her. So clearly she's a loyal and caring person. Why she might even have hung in there hoping that Anthony was gonna get better. Why would she do that? Don't forget that this is the first man she's ever really been with and she was in love with him. And she has stated that she believes he has a disease. What if she was hoping he was gonna get better? What if she was hoping that this marriage was retrievable because she has a fairly conservative view of marriage as an institution that should have longevity, right? Like I would guess that when Huma says I do to will you love through richer and poorer and all that good stuff till death do you part, that she takes her vows really, really seriously. That is the, what I would guess right there is that probably she's got some of that going on and maybe she even hoped that he would get better and that they could get back together. She seems to be able to forgive, you know, and forgiving is such a key component. And she, forgiving doesn't mean that what he did was right. Forgiving doesn't mean that he's justified in sexting or being a pedophile or any of those things. Forgiving means that she isn't stuck emotionally, hung up emotionally on what happened. Forgiving means that she can let go emotionally of the past and that she can move into a new future. Now, clearly she's not letting go super fast. Six years is six years, but she it has forgiven him and is moving forward. So what's another reason why she might've taken six years? Um, it might be that she was concerned for her employer's political stability, future, and that she wanted to, she wanted this to really subside and complete it at another time. It might be that she was allowing herself the space to progress emotionally with the divorce, or really she slowed down the divorce to the point where she can move forward emotionally. And I like this a lot. What I like about this is very often, as much as attorneys are accused of being slow, and costing people a lot of money in the divorce process and never getting it done fast enough. And why can't they get it done faster? I think the reality is that very often, even after a couple of years of going through divorce, people emotionally have not moved forward with the process. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is they're still angry and bitter. What I mean by that is they feel like they missed something or didn't get something or lost something in, in their marriage and they haven't mourned it and they haven't released it the way it appears that Huma has. And so what she has done by slowing down the process, by saying first, 
let's get a legal separation so that child custody and um, alimony and all that other stuff, whatever was involved in that agreement is taken care of. First, let's take care of that and have the experience of living apart. And then as we progress emotionally, when we're ready, we will finalize the divorce. It's actually completely upside down from how most of us operate. I mean, I'll tell you a personal story. When my father died, I didn't want to know about it. I, I was like, I'm going back to work. I'm going to get things done. I can be okay with this. And the truth was, I didn't want to have those feelings of sadness and pain and anger, you know, for him leaving me and all those feelings that come up when we lose someone. And divorce is not that different. Well, we don't lose the person in the sense that we never see them again, but we lose that person we fell in love with. Like, what happened to the person I fell in love with and who the hell are you? You know, and part of the anger and the blame is, I married this person. What did you, how did you become someone else? And then the other thing is we're losing all the dreams and the hopes that we created with that person, a whole life vision that we had together and we shared together are lost as we go into that divorce process. So in many ways, it's a lot like a death. And what we do is just like me with my father. It's like, I'm gonna go back to work. Life is gonna happen. I'm gonna meet somebody new. I'm gonna get my plans back on track. I can't tell you how many people I've had to come to my divorce groups who have been like this. Oh, I'm just here so I can meet someone new. They're not even finished getting divorced and they're already lining up their next conquest so they can have their life back as normal again. Normal being, I've got a wife or a husband and children and we live together and we're moving forward together. And they never give themselves the time to grieve, the time to have those feelings, or really it's the time to mourn because grieving happens. As I found out with my father, those feelings did come up and they came out sideways when I would least expect it. And in ways that were scary for the people around me because I wasn't managing my own feelings. But when we manage our feelings the way Huma is and allow them to naturally move forward and process, it's a safer experience for us it's a safer experience for our support network. It's a safer experience for our children. Could she have moved forward faster? Yes, perhaps she resolved her feelings after a year or two and maybe one of these other reasons that I stated kicked in and that's why she didn't follow through on the divorce. Perhaps, we don't know. But the core story here is, here is someone who has thought through how to have and manage their emotions. And so while our natural reaction to a crisis like divorce might be fight or flight or even play dead, playing dead could look like drinking a lot or um, going to our doctor and getting a lot of sleeping pills and just being medicated or whatever, even though our natural reaction to, to any situation that feels threatening is amygdala driven, if we think about it and think and take the advice of professionals, or the people around us who care and take the time to allow ourselves to have a mourning process, not just grief, to have a mourning process, then we can process our feelings and move forward. So a mourning process looks like, I'm gonna take some time, a weekend, six days, a month, and I'm gonna go somewhere and I'm just gonna feel like crap about this for a while. I'm gonna feel sad, I'm gonna feel angry. I'm gonna feel like a victim. 
I'm going to beat myself up or whatever it is we do, all the feelings that that sadness and grief and victimization bring up. I'm going to have all of those feelings and let them out so that when I'm done, I close the door on it and I can go back to life, my life, a life with my child, completely invested in the future instead of having my feelings leaking out the side rushing through the process, rush, 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 and having my feelings leaking out all over the place because I haven't allowed myself time to process them. So I'd like to believe that's what happened here. I'd like to believe that Huma Abedin is an example of someone who really fought their way through the emotional process. She thought it through for the sake of her partner. What could be best for him? How could she best serve the father of her child, even though her dreams with him were shattered and crashed and destroyed. He's still the father of her child. She's got a deal with him forever until either she dies, the child dies, or he dies. None of which are desirable. Then the next would be, she thought through, how might this impact my friend and employer who I care about and who I feel loyal to and who my future is tied to? How can I best handle this for the benefit of her campaign today and her future influence tomorrow and uh, her brand? Hillary Clinton has a brand. You know, if she never goes back into politics, she's got books she can write. She's got businesses. She's got so many things that can be influenced by the outcome of how Huma shows up publicly around her divorce. And then also, last but not least, she's probably thinking about the well-being of her child. What is, the, how can I handle this in a way where my child is gonna be minimally damaged? How can I handle this in a way where my child is gonna have a healthy or the healthiest possible relationship with myself and the other parent? No matter what's going on over there with the other parent, no matter how healthy or unhealthy that other parent may be, there's always a way that the child can have a healthy relationship of some kind with them. And who is going to, great lengths, I'm sure, to make sure that not only is there ease of access for the father of her child with her child, but I'm sure she's done a lot of personal work with her child, preparing her for dealing with that personality without ever outing him or pointing fingers at him. Right? The worst thing you can do for your child is say, oh, your dad, that sexting pedophile. Mommy, what's a sexting pedophile? Like that's like the worst thing you, she could have done. I'm sure she hasn't done any of that. I'm certain that she spent a lot of time laying the groundwork for the relationship that her child is gonna have with that man, making sure that this child feels like it's safe to reach out to her if, if he ever feels unsafe with her father. I'm sure she eased into this relationship since once he was released in prison, I'm gonna bet you dollars to donuts. She didn't just say, go spend five days with dad. I'm going to bet you dollars to donuts she eased into it and that she felt it out and that she made sure that this man who was coming out of prison was someone she could trust her child with and what under what conditions could she trust her child with him and what would her child need to know in order to hurt for her to feel safe with the child there would the child need a phone would there be um a safe word that the child might need i'm making stuff up now it really depends on who's on the other side but having worked with people who have divorced someone that they thought was toxic on the other side and knew that their child needed to have a relationship with them, I'm speaking from my experience. You know, there's all kinds of things 
that we can do with our children when the person on the other side appears toxic or even is toxic to educate them about how to deal with that personality type without pointing the finger at them, which is incredibly damaging for the child. Nothing more damaging for a child than being told your parent is a damaged piece of crap. Because what that means is their image of their parent and themselves, which is intimately linked to that parent, goes down. Their, their, their stock market value in their own mind goes down with the stock market value of the other parent. And that is a tragic thing and very difficult to recover from. So we always want to keep that other parent in the highest possible light in the eyes of our children without lying and without setting them up for failure the child or the parent. Is that making sense? How do we do this? We teach them uh, We teach them about their family history. We teach them about people who have had problems like that parent have had and how they manage them. We teach them strategies for dealing with what might come up in that context with that other parent. Strategies, if you're, the other person's a pathological liar, we teach them how to identify lies or, and how to not confront them but to just go, okay, and then go out and make a phone call and talk it through with someone else so that they aren't are carrying that lie in them. We teach them techniques, techniques for dealing with personality types that are similar to the person on the other side. Is that making sense? I hope so. If you are in a situation where maybe you've got someone toxic on the other side or you've got some unprocessed, feelings to talk about, I want you to feel free to reach out to me. You can always schedule a complimentary call with me through this link, bit.ly forward slash rich one-to-one, capital R-I-C-H one-to-one, bit.ly forward slash capital R, lowercase i, lowercase c, lowercase h, the number one-to-one, all one word. That will get you right to my calendar. Make a note in there when you schedule it. There's a place where you can put notes. Make a note in there and tell me what you're calling about so uh, I'm ready and I can really be there for you. And what will happen in that free call is we're going to talk about whatever's going on for you. And you're going to make a decision about what a next step might be. I'm going to pull it out of you. Uh, I'm going to share my experience and knowledge with you. And a next step might be uh, going to a 12-step group. A next step might be a book that you're going to read. A next step might be calling some people. The next step might be working with someone. You decide what that is. Okay, that's all we have for today. Thank you so much. And think about it, not just in divorce, but in any area of our life. How can we think our way to arrange our lives so that we can feel our way through any kind of, I was going to say tragedy, but not necessarily tragedy, any kind of challenge in life. Anything that's unexpected, um, anything that is painful and hurtful and sad for me, how do we think our way to allow ourselves to have those feelings in a way that's safe for us and doesn't pollute other people? I hope you took some real nuggets out of this. Have a terrific, terrific day.